Welcome to Profiles. My name is John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema. And today we're speaking with filmmaker Avi Nesher. Avi Nesher's many award-winning films have been integral to Israeli cinema, placing him as one of Israel's all-time greatest filmmakers, with 20 feature films to his credit as director. His work has received prestigious awards and nominations at major international film festivals and has won several Ophir Awards, the Israeli equivalent to the Academy Awards over the last 30-plus years of filmmaking. He is considered a master filmmaker whose contemporary work has been compared to the multiple Oscar-winning Iranian director Ashkar Farhadi, full-bodied, complex, and densely written. In addition to being loved by critics, his work is loved by Israeli audiences. His films have been the best box office draws of the year many times over, and his current film, The Other Story, was the top-grossing Israeli film in Israel in 2018. So we're happy to have him here with us on Profiles. Welcome, Avi Nesher. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Let's start with your path. You're born to Holocaust survivors, your Mm -hmm. mother and father and grew up in Israel, but also grew up in New York. So can you talk about your introduction to the arts as a young man? My earliest recollection is when I was maybe three or four, my mother took me to see the pajama games with um, Doris Day. And um, I have no um, distinct recollection of the movie itself, but strange enough, I remember exactly where I sat. So the the film-going experience greatly impacted me and... um, I've always loved films. I, uh, you know, as a small boy, I would, I would visit every single neighborhood theater in the hometown where I lived. And when my, my father was on diplomatic mission in New York, I, I really uh, thrived. Uh, there was an old theater in New York called the Elgin on 18th Street that did retrospectives of um, American masters like Buster Keaton, and uh, and I practically lived there. You know, I, I think. I finished high school only because I was an acceptable basketball player, and they kept me around for the basketball season. But um, it it was a great passion. Um, I did not dream of becoming a film director. I wanted to uh, be a film theoretician. I I wrote film theory. I I wrote for quarterly. I wrote essays. I was very interested in in film language, in film narrative. And um, I, I think growing up in both countries uh, made me both American and Israeli, but also somebody who's an outsider in both countries. And in many ways, I think an artist, by definition, is an outsider. And I think being an outsider gives you a pretty good perspective into any given society. And you were also a musician. Uh, you, you had told me earlier that you were a jazz musician. How did music play into your, uh, I guess, your growing up, but also, say, your, your New York days, your college days? I wasn't very good, mind you. I was okay. a very enthusiastic. Uh, I, I, I did play. I did play with, with several bands, and we did play some clubs in New York, and I did make this sort of meager living out of it when I was a student. But m- music really uh, has affected me greatly. To this day, I understand cinema through music. I mean, for me, music is not something which accompanies a movie. I hate the term underscore. I really think it's an insulting term. I mean, for me, music should be counterpoint. For me, music should be something that says emotionally what words would cheapen. And uh, I, I use music as Greek chorus, in a way. I use music as commentary. And whenever I write, I understand the music before I understand the words. I spend a great deal of time uh, wandering through other film scores, you know, uh, looking for tone, looking for uh, musical structure. I always 
have some great composers of the past be the ambassadors of the movie I'm about to do. I cast my composers the way I cast my actors. I have a lot of friends who are film composers, but I do not use one composer for all films because the structure of my Greek chorus changes from film to film. And I, for me, really, music is the sheer emotion. It's, it's the core of a movie. And when I understand the music, I can sit down and I write it. And as I write a screenplay, I play nothing but these scores, which are of the type that I would use in the movie. Uh, I have, have assistants known to go crazy by uh, having to listen to the same uh, film score again and again and again. So then at the point that you've scripted the film and you're choosing your composer, do you pass on the music that you were listening when you were scripting to those composers or, or you just communicate the tone and the other things you're looking for? Well, I, I use this music as a temporary dub, you know, and uh, so, you, you know, you finish editing a movie, you finish the rough cut. Before you show it to people, you need to put on some music. And I use these scores and uh, you get almost superstitious about it because when the music that you used works perfectly with the picture, it means that you're doing something right. I've had upon occasion, upon occasion I've worked uh, with the same composer who wrote The Temp. I, I worked with a great French composer, Philippe Sard, you know, who wrote many of the Polanski scores, a great, great French composer. And I used his score uh, for some earlier movies for my movie, The Matchmaker. And then uh, somebody introduced us and he liked the rough cut of The Matchmaker, but he was shocked to meet his own uh, music from other movies. Mm. And interestingly enough, when we first started working, he tried to distance himself from his earlier work as much possible and write something completely new. And I very subtly was trying to hint that the reason I'm working with him is because I like the tone of his earlier music, and this is pretty much what I want. Sure, sure. And he accepted that vision, I'm assuming. Well, some, somewhat uh, begrudgingly, uh, it's, you know, it's, Sometimes when a composer sees a movie, uh, he goes into the obvious, you know. I mean, uh, it's a thriller, you know, so you go into cellos and to basses, you know. It's, uh, it's a comedy, you do a xylophone, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, of course, I like to cast against type, and I like to do music against type. So my film, The Matchmaker, had some Holocaust themed, and I wanted anything but, you know, the typical Jewish violin or anything that one would associate with Schindler or any other great scores of Holocaust-type movies. I wanted something totally different, which was like the very European and French uh, music that he wrote. And in, in the beginning, he really, you know, he, he needed to, uh, to stand up to John Williams and do one better than Schindler. And I said, no, no, we're not playing in that ballpark at all. You know, that's great unto itself. But basically what I need you to do is to accentuate the foreignness of all these Jews who came to Israel after the Holocaust, you know, and there were strangers in a strange land. It, it took him a while to understand my take, yeah. but, and then it was just a delight to work with him. Let's come back to New York. Uh, you attended Columbia University, but you didn't attend the film school. Was there a film school at that time? or They, they had no bachelor's program at the time. There okay. was just uh, a master's. Andrew Saris was... Uh, big man on campus, you know, he was the film critic of the Village Voice. He was, in many ways, the father of the American author theory. He wrote the quintessential book on American cinema called American Cinema, which I pretty much knew by heart. He had um, great influence on my writing as a young critic. You know, my, my major was political science, and uh, after a couple of years, um, I took many, many film classes, and I was called to the dean's office to let me know that uh, I'm pretty close to getting a master's, but I'm nowhere near getting a bachelor's. <laughs> so 
somewhere in there, you did your military service in Israel, correct? Uh, yes. After a couple of years in Colombia, I turned 18, and um, Israelis go to the military at 18. And, and truthfully, I, it was my duty, but I also was very much afraid that I would grow up to be one of those New York intellectuals that Woody Allen makes fun of. You know, I wrote short stories. I was fairly eloquent, and uh, I really was afraid of um, becoming a man of words. And in many ways, for me, going to the military was like Hemingway going to the Spanish Civil War. You know, I mean, it was really important for me to encounter uh, real life from up close. And when you encounter real life, you also encounter real death. And, you know, it was a very, very interesting and challenging four years of my life uh, serving in the military. And life-changing, I'm, I'm sure. <clears throat> um, at what point, I guess, in the military did you decide to become a filmmaker? Because it wasn't long after that that you went back to Columbia, correct? Well, I, I went to Columbia after my army service, but right. uh, I was um, I was wounded uh, after about a year and, 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 and pretty badly, and... Uh, I was uh, you know, unable to go back to the service for a couple of months, and I had nothing better to do. And the Army service was really quite fascinating. And meanwhile, we had the Yom Kippur War, which was very, very traumatic for my generation. And uh, I tried writing a short. I wrote, uh, I wrote a short film, and I got some production grant, and I shot the movie using you know, the uh, goodwill and good grace of a lot of friends. And the movie won many, many international awards, and suddenly I realized that I just might be able to make movies. We just, again, for me, you know, Hitchcock is a director, John Ford is a director. The assumption that you can be like that just seemed so uh, so daunting. And so I, I made this movie, I made another short towards the end of my army service, and I went back to uh, Columbia, and um, the military really changes you. I mean, you, I went in, I was 18, I went out, I was 22, but I was 22 going on 52, you know. I mean, I, I lost many good friends, and it really changes your perspective and changes your sense of urgency. And um, it was difficult for me just to be in school, you know, and take classes. And uh, I went back to writing, and I tried my hand and writing a feature film that in a way related to the military experience, you know, and... Uh, one of the amazing thing about the military experience is it's very very uh, communal, but you also uh, you are told what to do, and many times uh, you are told what you consider the wrong thing to do, and uh, every now and then you want to stand up and say no, which those characters in this movie do, uh, which in Israel in the seventies was an outrage. You have to have people stand up to the military, and so I wrote that screenplay. I sent it. To a friend of mine, he, you know, uh, found some funds. I, I was working with a young woman called Sharon Harrell, you know, who was my associate and a great collaborator. And we made this movie. It was deemed to be an experimental movie. It didn't have a specific uh, storyline. It didn't have a given structure. Uh, it was kind of uh, Altman-esque in that uh, it has 12 characters, not one distinct lead. Um, I remember uh, the producer saying, this movie will never see the light of day. Nobody will see it. It doesn't have a love interest. It doesn't have, you know, um, anything that Israeli audiences are used to. And um, the movie came out and be became a huge, huge success. And it was the first time, one of the first times that Israeli movie uh, was both critically acclaimed and was successful because you know, before that there were some successes that the critics hated and 
some movies they liked them. So this was this great divergence between what critics uh, found to be acceptable and what the audience found acceptable. And this this film was really different. And um, it it you know it was a revelation. I mean, there I was. I was twenty three years old. You know, was was a really really successful film. Was the realization that uh, maybe I can do this. And and the film uh, for the audience out there is the troop yes. from nineteen seventy eight. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great film, and it's a musical comedy. I think you uh, compared it to Mash at some point, and other things. But uh, I, I didn't think about Altman now until you said that. But it is a great ensemble piece of yes. characters. So you finish the troupe, and you have the confidence now as a young filmmaker who has made something really successful, and you make uh, several other films in Israel to follow that. And it seems as though many of those films carry personal experiences with them. So uh, the film set in Tel Aviv in the 70s um, mm-hmm. is about a young filmmaker, a, a trio of friends. Um, that certainly has to be somewhat autobiographical. Or Oh, it, it was very much so. Actually, after this, my, the, the success of my first movie really spooked me. Okay. You know, when, when you were 23 and you used to be a jazz musician and you do something which is so popular, you suddenly realize maybe if everyone likes it, it must be mediocre. Or if everybody likes it, you know, maybe it's not bold enough or maybe it's not inventive enough or maybe it's not provocative enough. And I I was really lost and I decided to do a movie about a young filmmaker who was afraid he lost his way. And and Tel Aviv was a really wild place in the 70s. And uh, my roommate was my editor, you know, uh, who's the same man who's been cutting uh, films to this very day. His name is Yitzchak Tzchayak. He's a great, great editor. And uh, we, we, we lived in an apartment in Tel Aviv that would put Animal House to shame mm-hmm. and um, with great filmmaking aspirations. And, and I thought I would do a candid movie about, the, you know, I mean, myself and this friend and the young woman who lived with us, and I would do it as candidly and as wild as we were. And I, I was sure that this movie will really outrage the Israeli audience, and I would vindicate my, my lost honor. And, and much to my chagrin, this movie was also very successful. <laughs> so I, I, I failed to fail. Well, um, hopefully you didn't continue to feel like you were selling out. or, or... No, no, but at that point I felt that maybe I was having a reasonable conversation with, with the Israeli public. And, um, you, you, you know, what one, one is taught in film schools, you know, that one is above the public, so to speak. But that, that's, that's hogwash, yeah. you know. I mean, all the great filmmakers that I've always admired, you know, made movies that have worked both artistically and and commercially. I, I remember Ingmar Bergman's persona played Tel Aviv for 42 weeks, right. you know. Uh, so um, it dawned on me that there really does not need to be any discrepancy between commercial success and artistic success, as long as you're doing one from the heart, as long as you're doing movies about things that really matter to you, as long as you do not cater to anything or anyone, and, and you're just kind of being as truthful as you can about. You, and, and you can take chances cinematically that an, an audience will go along was just about every madness as long as there's a rhyme or reason to it. You then made a few more films in Israel, including one that's considered one of the most important Israeli films ever, Rage and Glory, in 1984. Yes. And uh, just received a a restoration from the Israel Film Archive and the Jerusalem Cinematheque. The timing of it was during the Lebanon War. Mm -hmm. And um, can you talk about why you chose this subject and a little bit about the film, because it was also controversial, and, and it brought a lot of criticism to you. So maybe you finally got the criticism you were, you were aiming for. Um, but can you talk about Rage and Glory a bit? 
when the war in Lebanon started, you know, it was the first bad Israeli war, what I considered myself and my friends a bad war because we deemed it an unnecessary war. You know, and Israel is an extremely misunderstood state and people who judge it, you know, who have not lived it, do not understand what it is like to live under existential threat for seven years, you know, and people are very critical of Israel, one thing or another, and some of the criticism is true, and yet those who criticize have not had their parents survive a Holocaust, have not had, you know, their members of the family, you know, be amongst the six million people who perished. So I'm very, very careful when I'm critical of Israel and when other people are critical of Israel, Israel is in a very, very, um, you know, special situation. You know, Israel has never gone to war, you know, for the sake of war. Um, uh, again, Lebanon was shaping up to be Vietnam, but America was not under existential threat. You know, Israel always was and always is under existential threat, and still I thought this was a bad war. So my point was not that wars are bad. You know, I mean, wars in the Middle East are very often inevitable, and God knows if, if somebody has bothered to go into Syria, maybe half a million Syrians would not be dead now. Right. But um, my, my point was that you cannot really uh, overcome um, terrorists slash freedom fighters using conventional force, which is what the Israeli army attempted to do. So I made a movie about Jewish terrorists, about, you know, the, the, uh, the terrorists slash freedom fighters who fought the British and won Israeli independence uh, during the 40s. In many ways, I made a movie about young people. I mean, in, in many ways, it's a rock and roll movie, you know, and, and, and the violence is, it is, is uh, um, very, very stylized, and it's been compared to Bonnie and Clyde and, and movies like this. And a lot of uh, people in Israel at the time, you know, during the war, thought it was uh, a pro-Palestinian movie, you know, which, which was a ludicrous contention, but uh, uh, everybody was being very sensitive, and the movie got lots of press, good and bad, all of it wrong. You know, those who liked it, liked it for the wrong reason. Those who hated it, hated it for the wrong reason. Yeah. And it just got really, really noisy and really unpleasant. And, um, you know, years later, it just became a movie that starts in film schools and uh, a movie about the essence of violence, the way young people are attracted to violence. I mean, you know, I mean, everywhere people are constricted at 18. 18 seems to be a really good age right. to get young men or women to go into war because I think... I always tell people that we don't have a choice. I mean, it's not make love, not war. I mean, we make love and we make war. It's part of human nature. I mean, we don't really get to choose between the two. And so it was a very, very um, controversial movie to, to a point where I thought I did not achieve my objective, which is to show a side of the war that would be so negative that would get Israelis thinking again whether uh, they want to be a part of this war or not. And there, actually there was a time when I thought of not making movies anymore. Welcome back to Profiles. I'm John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema, and we're speaking today with Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher. So after Raging Glory, um, you have this moment where you're questioning whether you want to continue making movies. But at some point, then you go back to the U.S. to start making B-movies, uh, films that represent a genre maybe that you loved as a critic. Mm -hmm. um, 
So can you talk about uh, what drew you to Hollywood to start making some of these B-movies? When, when I was a critic, my, my whole thing was B-movies as subversive art because the movies that were made in America in the 50s during the McCarthy era, be it by Don Siegel, by Robert Aldrich, by Fuller, by people like that, were the, the most original movies made in Hollywood at that time. They were made under the radar of the big Hollywood studios. And, you know, a movie like The Invasion, The Body Snatchers, I think is the most interesting cinematic statement about the McCarthy era made in Hollywood at the time. So I was, I was very, very much attracted to it. I really liked, you know, the, the whole notion of movies that appear to be very modest and yet have something very provocative to say. And, um, and producer Dion De Laurentiis, you know, a great producer, saw Raging Glory um, in, in one of the festivals, it played festivals worldwide, and he really loved it. And uh, and he called me up and um, he said, I understand you have interest in making action and sci-fi movies, which is, you know, very different what you have done. Are you sure you want to come and make one? And I said, yes, I think it would be an interesting experiment for me. And I saw it strictly as an experiment, you know, something totally cerebral. And um, I, I, I came to Hollywood and I made a movie, a movie for MGM uh, called Time Bomb, which, you know... Um, uh, won the Avoriaz Science Fiction Film Festival and all that, you know, and and it, it it was difficult for me working within the Hollywood system. It was difficult for me um, not being able to choose my own cast and uh, not having a final cut, and uh, it it was not an altogether pleasant experience. Mm. You stayed for several films, but um, there must have been something that drew you to it or, or kept you there. But eventually you do go back to Israel and in 2004 to make a turn left at the end of the world, which then kind of changed Israeli cinema in many ways for the future. I don't know if you want to add anything more about your, your Hollywood days or any of those films. I know there's one that you're, you're, you're still kind of fond of, and Taxman, which is getting a restoration. Yes. Yeah, Taxman is more along the lines of Israeli movies. Uh, it's based on a true story. I wrote it with a real Taxman, a man called Roger Berger, who was a, was a Taxman and a, and a really good and interesting writer. And, and it's a non-genre movie. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, one is, you know, the two heroes, one is a tax investigator, one is a policeman, but it's, it's not really uh, a, a policier, as the French like to put it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really, a, I, I, I'm very interested in, in genres, but I don't do genres very well. And I really um, like to mess with structure, you know. I mean, I, I don't like to do the old McKay kind of, you know, set up and pay off and this kind of stuff. I also feel that audiences have gotten so sophisticated, then they, they know all the rules of the game and you have to subvert the game altogether to make interesting cinema. So I, I had, you know, I, I liked Hollywood. People badmouth Hollywood. I had a really interesting time. I met wonderful people. Uh, making those movies were a learning experience. Uh, I, I don't think of them in the same light that I think of uh, my Israeli films, except for Taxman, which which I think is an inter interesting movie. But, um, you know, I, I, I had a good experience. So you come back in 2004, and um, it was a conscious decision to move back to Israel at this time. Um, can you talk about uh, your decision to make this film, Turn Left at the End of the World, um, and why you chose that subject and why that was the right film to come back to Israel with? Um, my, my father passed away um, at 2001. And my father was, you know, one of those, he was the ultimate displaced Jew. You know, he was born in a small town that sometimes was part of Germany, sometimes was part of Romania, part of uh, Russia. Then he went to Israel and he passed away as an American, came to America. So this man had five different identities. Uh, throughout his lifetime. 
And um, I, I, I knew none of them, you know. I mean, I was an Israeli kid. He was from there. I was from here. Uh, there was a big chasm between us. And when he passed away, I realized that I knew nothing of my father and my whole generation. Knew nothing about, you know, their parents. And that's a horrible sin to commit, you know, not not to pay enough respect to your parents, to, to get to know them on a closer level. And in many ways, I wanted to make a movie about his generation. And I, w- I was looking for a story that would uh, express the absurdity, you know, of the constant immigrant experience. And, uh, and I found one. And... Um, I went to Israel with the explicit intention of, of making this one movie. I, you know, Israeli film industry was in a really bad state at that time. You know, Israelis have not gone to see Israeli movies for a couple of decades before that. And I figured I would make this one movie in honor of my father, and that would be my end of my career altogether. And um, I made this movie, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a movie about children of, uh, of immigrant parents it's set in a small town in the desert. Um, and uh, the two lead characters were two young women. My, my daughter was just born. It was really interesting for me to write myself through, um, through my daughter, so to speak. And um, the movie was just a huge success, you know, which, which was strange. And in many ways, it kind of got people interested again in Israeli cinema. So a lot of young filmmakers, which, which Israel just really has an abundance of really, really talented young filmmakers. Israel has great film schools, and I think Israel has more film students per capita than any, any other country in the world. Uh, you know, and, and then uh, the resurgence of Israeli cinema has become to a point where now just about every festival you go to, you see three, four Israeli films, and Israeli movies are you know very original, and uh, the whole notion of trying to be honest is a... Is, is a very strong Israeli value. Let's dig into Israeli cinema then. And I like what you say about um, you know finding truth and being honest. Um, I, I also like what you just alluded to of telling your story through different characters. It seems like your personal experiences come into many of your films, or if not all of your films. Um, how important is it, I guess, for you to search for truth or search for things in the films that you're writing and then eventually making. Um, and, and do you think that carries forward to all of Israeli cinema as a, at least as a, just do you think Israeli cinema is about that in many ways? Well, you know, just about every Israeli film I've ever made was based on a true story. I'm, I'm very enamored of, of taking um, true stories because, again, they, they lack the conventional structure. And um, Israeli movies are not made for much money. And the only way they can stand up, you know, to, to American cinema, you know, to the Marvel movies, is by being truly original. And um, real life makes it possible for you to tell a story that has no rules, because real life has no rules. So whenever I write a screenplay, I start off from a, from a real story, and I let my characters dictate the way the narrative unfolds. So really, there's no way to know where the story is going. It's not like it's a romantic comedy and you can go to the bathroom for 10 minutes and come back and it will not be resolved because, you know, it's boy uh, meets girl, boy loses girl, boy, and, and, and all that, you know. I mean, and, and much of Israeli cinema is like that, you know. Um, it's, chances are, if you see an Israeli movie, chances are it will be original. Um, there's something very candid about Israeli cinema because it relates to, to life as we experience it. 
um, Israeli has a very rich, sometimes too rich, um, existence. You know, it's it's an immigrant country, but it's not a conventional immigrant country. People didn't come to Israel, you know, for economic well-being. Uh, they either escaped persecution by, uh, by the Nazis, you know, in, in um, Muslim countries, or, uh, you know, they came, you know, believing in socialism or in the Zionist ideas. So it's a very, very unique country, and it's it has really, really great stories in it. And um, originality is one of the major strengths of, uh, of Israeli cinema. I, I like what you said about um, your characters kind of driving and finding their way and finding their truths. And do you think your, uh, your jazz background and improvisation kind of lead your writing to have that kind of freedom to go without structure? Very much so. It, it, it goes way past my writing. I mean, I consider the first draft as an invitation to the dance, so to speak. You know, it will start the process. And then when I cast, I mean, I never know what those characters look like. I mean, I cast people's souls. I don't cast the way they look. And I do not hire actors to work for me. I hire collaborators who will work for me. And my, uh, my screenplays change a lot throughout rehearsals. So each one of my actors knows more about a given character than I do. And they enrich the experience by sharing their own life experience. And I do a new draft every week throughout rehearsal. And I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite till the character becomes the actor and the actor becomes the character. And once we finally shoot, the actor speaks the truth. You know, I mean, it's not just some lines he rehearsed and he learned by heart. I mean, the actor brings his own experience. And this whole notion of, of truth is, is something which is very powerful because the whole notion of cinema, I mean, we're dealing in falsehoods, right? It's, it's, it's just shadows flickering across the screen. It's not real life. And we anticipate the whole notion of suspension of disbelief. We want people to, you know, to, to, to cry and to laugh and to be afraid and to do that something really magical has to happen. And uh, I have friends who make fun of me because when I should have seen it has funny lines, I laugh at the lines I wrote. You know, and there's something really idiotic about it, but I completely forget that I, I write them and I view it as the first member of the audience who will ever see this movie. And and that's just my approach to filmmaking. You know, I mean, I can, I, I, I do things with camera, I can stylize it, there's a whole thing of film language, but ultimately it's about bringing something very truthful to the screen and it starts with the actor mean, when, when the actor meets the screenplay. So, so you take away this whole artificial notion of you know somebody who just kind of mumbles a given text, and you—it's—it's it's not documentary style by no means, but the actor is reenacting an experience that he has had before. That's that's beautiful. I I like that. Another thing that's really important to Israeli cinema is trauma, post-trauma, collective trauma, generational trauma. How do you deal with that in your writing, your work? Well, that's unfortunately a major part of my life. You know, I'm a son of Holocaust survivors. Um, as I look at my daughter, she she is the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. Uh, one of the reasons Israel is misunderstood, people do not understand the lingering effect of the Holocaust on, on Israel. I mean, Israel is a very, very anxious country. Israelis are very, very anxious. And this whole no notion of being hunted down is still very much a part of the Israeli experience. And we're all stricken with, uh, with post-trauma. And I believe that cinema has the potential of, of offering a sense of redemption. And in many ways, Israeli cinema is the equivalent of a psychological treatment. You know, you go to a cinema and you discuss the, the elephant in the room. Um, Israel has a trauma of um, the immigration experience, you know, 
you know, Jews who came from North African countries being mistreated by Jews who came from uh, Europe. Uh, you know, Holocaust survivors being looked down upon because they went, you know, to their deaths like lambs to the slaughter. Uh, religious Jews fighting secular Jews, Palestinians fighting Israelis. All these things are going on, and all these things must be discussed. And the beautiful thing about cinema is once you put this narrative forward, you get people talking. And I always tell people, I mean, my movies have no answers, only questions, but I expect the audience to continue the conversation after the movie is over. And, and you know, the, 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 way, the way to liberation is through discussion. Obviously, you know, no one's point of view is more valid than the others, and the only way me and you can come to agree on two different narratives is by exchanging them and agreeing to the validity of each of our narratives. And this is pretty much what my films try to do. I like the idea of asking questions, and it seems as though your more recent films, there's a lot of mystery in them. If you look at The Wonders, if you look at Past Life, if you look at The Other Story, there's an uncovering, and there's peeling back, and there's discovery. Is mystery important to you? Well, you know, my, my film, I, I write the way I feel. And uh, we, we, we live in the world that grows more and more mysterious. I mean, the more information we have, the less we know. Uh, we are surrounded by so much information. Some of it might be fake. Some of it might be true. Uh, the old simple notion of truthfulness has gone by the wayside. We are bombarded with so, so many versions of um, alternative reality. So for me, life is turning into much more of a mystery. I mean, we're all leading kind of a noir version of, uh, of one's life. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan of, of uh, film noir, obviously. Uh, but I, I, like to, um, I, I like to allude to the noir version of real life, which, which are plentiful. And I'm, I've, I've not done that consciously, but you are right. As, as I look back at the movies I've done in the last few years, you know, there, there's always some kind of a mystery to be solved, and the mystery never gets solved completely. And there's probably no need to solve it completely because the actual human experience is more valuable than, than the sense of complete knowledge. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think the, um, the characters learn something about themselves in trying to solve these mysteries, and that's the growth. That's the moving forward. Um, in a way. We, we talked about the past briefly, and there's a Faulkner quote that I've heard you make before. The past is never dead. It's not even past. So Faulkner must be an influence, possibly, on your work. But are there other influences on your work, other writers, music, filmmakers? I, I'm sure there are a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, I consume a great deal of culture. You know, I read a lot. I see a lot of movies. I listen to a lot of music. Uh, art is a major part of my life. My wife is a great, great artist. You know, my daughter is about to make her first feature film. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the artistic life. I go back to uh, you know, my years in university and, you know, watching Vertigo 15 times and, you know, watching uh, Buster Keaton's The General, you know, 18 times and uh, et cetera, et cetera, reading Absalom, Absalom. Uh, you know, again, there, there's a great... A uh, quote by the Israeli novelist Shai Agnon, and he said, "Any novel which is not worth reading a second time was not worth reading the first time." You know, and that's kind of the way I feel about art. You know, I mean, I have, I have films that I've seen many, many times, and I keep going back to it. I mean, I can, I can just see 20 minutes of The Godfather Part Two and just feel better about cinema altogether. You know, so for me, films are very much a part of my life.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. My name is John Vickers, director of the Indiana University Cinema, and we're speaking with Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher. You've been praised by some of the actors who have worked with you, calling you an actor's director. I've read a quote where you said, casting is like falling in love. So you do, of course, need to have a connection with the people you're going to work with. But you've also acted yourself in a a film called One Small Step. Um, Has that experience um, given you a different perspective on on acting and actors? Well, my main perspective is never to act again. (laughs) I I, I consider myself a very, very bad actor, and I'm I'm way too um, self-conscious inevitably. Uh, I think if one can make movies with stills, I'd be fine. But unfortunately, you know, they're moving pictures. And once I start to move, it all falls apart. Um, You know, the the film that I acted in uh, was done in a different way than the way I make movies. I I wouldn't have cast myself. Uh, And uh, I I really, I I, I love actors. You know, um, people who've worked with me many, many years ago, I still, um, my, my close friends, for me, in many, many ways, uh, the camaraderie that I experienced during my war years uh, is very much similar to the camaraderie I experienced making movies. Uh, for me, this whole notion of camaraderie is something that I, I value very much. And, and that camaraderie has led to long-term relationships with your cinematographer, your editor, possibly not only because you like being around them, but is there a shorthand now between you that you're much more efficient in the process? There's a shorthand and there's a methodology because, for example, most most directors have really long rough cuts because they fall in love with everything they shot. I hate everything I shot. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I wish I could go back and show it again. And my editor is in charge of saving my movies from me because, I mean, I, I, I can just, you know, whittle it down to next to nothing. And uh, he's, he's very good, and uh, I respect his opinion, but also because I like him. I have sure. to listen to him. Uh, and my cinematographer is someone that I've worked with, with many, many years. He's a close personal friend, and he's extremely trustworthy. And when you, know, when you shoot a film, a shooting day, I mean, not for naught, the expressing shooting is relevant both to uh, the military you know, and to cinema. It's a very, very tense and very, very stressful experience and the collaboration of your DP is crucial because you cannot devote the same amount of time to each shot that you'd like. And some shots must be perfect, and some shots, you know, can be acceptable. And I always have a very specific editing scheme in mind, and I know exactly how I need how I need the, the shot to look. And the great thing about my DP is, A, he tolerates me, and B, he always does it better than what I envisioned. Uh, but it doesn't come only out of great professionalism. It comes out of friendship. And the notion of friendship is, uh, is a very, very important. I mean, I, I, I can come to him if I see an actor in trouble. I can come to him and whisper in his ear, you know, fake like you need 20 more minutes lighting, you know, because I need more time with the actor and I don't want to embarrass him or her. And, and suddenly, you know, there would be a crisis in the lighting department and 20 more minutes would be required. And uh, he would not ask why. He would not ask what happened, you know. And, and, and again, uh, it's, it's, I, I go back to camaraderie. Yeah. And uh, I refer to the films I make as not my films and our films, you know. And, and all these, the, the editor, the DP, the actors all share in the making of the film. That's why you're an actor's director. I mean, just giving that kind of respect and, and room mm-hmm. and space. Uh, I mean, that's a nice story. Actually, I, uh, <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I love um, using stand-up comedians, you know, because stand-up comedians have this unique thing about them, uh, which they, they stand on stage kind of naked in front of an audience. Uh, there are no sets, there's no music, no great lighting, and they tell the truth about themselves, usually the embarrassing truth. So they're really used to be truthful, and there's a great Israeli comedian called Adir Miller who's been both in The Matchmaker and The Wonders and other movies. Uh, the only problem with stand-up comedians is they're compulsive jokesters, and they must tell jokes. And I disallow this on a set because, you know, I'm a great believer in the notion that whatever is funny on the set will not be funny in the editing room. So he is not allowed to tell any jokes, and I can see it's really hard for him. And every now and then I fake like I have to go to the bathroom just to give him three minutes of telling jokes, you know, when I'm gone. And, and so th- th- those are very precious relationships between sure. director and, and actor, and I value them very much. He's wonderful in both of those films. One of them, he gets to be a little lighter, The Wonders, but he's a pretty serious, intimidating character in The Matchmaker. He's a great actor, and he's a very, very funny man. Let's talk about mentorship. You've been a real mentor for young Israeli filmmakers, and you continue to be um, both in script labs, master classes, working with filmmakers, helping produce things that uh, young filmmakers might come to you with. So how important is it for you to do this and to be this in some ways, a father figure on some of these projects to these young filmmakers to help them get their work done. I'm fascinated by young filmmakers. I, you know, I, I always tell, you know, film students that sometimes ignorance is bliss because maybe if you don't know, you're not that experienced, you just might find a whole new way uh, to make movies. And uh, I, again, because I love cinema so much, I'm really interested in the future of cinema. I'm really interested in the, the next turn of events, the next. Uh, stylistic one thing or another and um, I'm for me it's it's just a really great joy I mean to be able to be helpful to a young filmmaker I mean I I take it as seriously as making my own movie I'm whenever I do it I'm very very careful to preserve um, the filmmakers own original voice I think one of the problems when you mentor is you tend to bring in your experience and then you could be overly influential and you know I uh, my, my job is to be kind of trail guide, bodyguard kind of a thing, you know. And I'm very, very careful because each filmmaker has his own individual voice, which is really precious. And this is where things become really interesting, when new voices are introduced. So, you know, my, my, my big thing is to make it possible for the filmmaker to make his film the way he envisioned. And uh, again, because I have such... Uh, a complex relationship with the notion of structure. I love I love reinventing structure. And when people make brand new movies, they usually come up with a brand new approaches. Were you a fan of, or are you a fan of films with deep nested narratives? In what way? Uh, like Dreams Within a Dreams Within a Dream, or like Saragossa Manuscript, or um, Inception, and, and so where it just keeps going back and back and back. Yeah, you know, there's no rule of thumb. Uh, Inception, I I thought, was a great movie. It was fascinating. Uh, When Hitchcock does Spellbound, you know, I mean, uh, all the uh, Dali uh, sets, you know, are not as effective as Vertigo, which has more of a straightforward uh, narrative line. So there's no rule of thumb. I mean, sometimes it's very, very effective. Sometimes it can be gimmicky. Uh, Memento is really interesting and, and really effective. There are other movies which have used this kind of a methodology uh, to, to a lesser effect. I really find that, again, when, when one does something not for the effect of it, 
and one does not stylize, you know, for the sake of stylizing, mm -hmm. but because one has something deep to say through this act, then it becomes meaningful. But one can, things can become an exercise in style really, really quickly, and, and that's something to be aware of. So never let the form dictate. No. Having said that, you know, I'm a great fan of the Howard Hawks notion of professionalism being a value unto itself. You know, so sometimes form can become content or form can become an honor system. But form for form's sake, you know, is, is not so high on my list of priorities. There's a very brief poem from Charles Bukowski that goes, when form appears, the spirit wanes. It's <laughs> uh, a great quotation. It is, it is. I, I like it. It's a great quotation. Let's talk about The Other in your films, but most recently in The Other Story, your newest film. How important is it for you to explore The Other? Uh, there's a filmmaker who I really love, Claire Denis, and she's constantly exploring The Other in the societies or the areas that she's looking at. Is that important to you to explore The Other? It's extremely important to me. It has always been important to me. Actually, my very first movie, The Troop, you know, there were 12 characters, and I read somewhere that you can see uh, the movie 12 different times, and you can see 12 different stories. You know, I would shoot in these movies close-ups with wide lenses, so, you know, uh, you could see the, the actor's facial expressions, but you can see a whole different story going in the background. Um, and I'm, you know, I come from a part of the world which is, you know, uh, is afflicted with a great deal of strife. And uh, there's, there's a lot of other in Israel, you know. There's, you know, to, to Israelis, there are the Palestinians, to the secular, there's the Orthodox, you know, to the uh, Ashkenazi Jew, there's the Sephardi Jew. And, and we are very much entrenched within our own notion of reality because that's all we know. And, and I have really have come to accept, you know, the limitations of my own grasp of reality, and one of the films I like the most is John Ford's The Men Who Shot Liberty Vance. You know, with the whole notion of, of history and myth uh, uh, conflict and collide. And I've always, in every single one of my movies, I've tried to, to maintain perspective where there are no villains and no heroes, and it's just people interacting. And in the other story, which is my most recent movie, it tells a story of a secular couple trying to break up the marriage of their daughter to an Orthodox Jew because they're afraid that she will become Orthodox and they will lose her altogether. And you understand their point of view. You understand the daughter's point of view. You understand why they're going to fight each other. And you're not cheering for any one side to win in particular, but you're really intrigued by the maneuvers, you know, of all sides. And then this movie has an A plot and has a B plot, and the B plot suddenly swallows the A plot because just, just the way life works, right? I mean, it's never about one story. There's always the other story. So the whole notion of otherness really fascinates me. Welcome back to Profiles. My name is John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema, and we're speaking today with Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher. You've talked about the process a bit, and you've talked about camaraderie being really important to you, but you've also talked about making films being kind of like being in war. And you've talked about writing sometimes being excruciating for you. So what about the filmmaking process do you like other than the camaraderie? What part of the process do you like the most? There are two stages in making a film which I really like. 
maybe even three. I really like inception. I really like that stage when you have a grain of an idea and you're toying with it. And I always have several grains. On my desk, there are maybe five, six stacks of notes, and each has a name of a film on them. And uh, uh, my kids used to refer to these stacks as uh, a turtle race. You know, turtles racing very, very slowly. And at some point, one turtle is going to beat the others and become the film that I have to do. And I never know which one. And I'm intrigued with the internal conversation that I have with myself as I'm trying to understand why is it that I want to make this specific movie or that specific movie. It's a big decision because you're going to spend two, three years of your life doing that thing. And you need to think that it might be significant to at least one other person in the world. I'm not a great believer in just doing what you want to do because it amuses you or because, I'm again, I'm a great believer in cinema being a social force and a social presence, but it does come from you. I mean, it starts as a selfish act and it needs to be sharing something for, not necessarily for the greater good, but for the greater understanding or for the greater questioning. You know, it's a time which I find very, very interesting. It's a little bit like uh, wondering who are you going to marry, you know? I mean, there you are, um, a cinematic bachelor, and uh, all these women that you find interesting, and uh, you're not quite sure what is it that you really want and which relationship will be meaningful, and you don't want to flirt, right? You just want to do something which is really meaningful. And you take your time, and you take your time, and you take your time, and then when it becomes apparent, there's this great sense of exhilaration that overcomes you because suddenly you understand, you know, the great Lenin saying what needs to be done, right? So you know what needs to be done. And so, so I, I find this really interesting. And then a screenplay needs to be written because without a screenplay, the process will not begin. But you are aware of your own limitations and you can write a really clever screenplay and yet... In any given screenplay, there's only one character which is much like you. So that character you can write really well. But there are a bunch of other characters who are not like you, and that's just guesswork. You know, you're just, just doing the best you can at this stage. But you know there will come a time where you will cast. And you know there will be a time where actors are going to come in. And then the process will start again. And I, I deem the casting process to be part of the rewrite because I often misimagine what a character is like, and I'm totally open to my own misconceptions and my own prejudices. And for me, you know, Rodin once said that a statue exists within a piece of marble, and all you have to do is remove all the, uh, all the unnecessary elements that, that kind of, you know, uh, imprison the statue. And, and I, I, feel, I feel the same way. I feel that you know, I wrote a screenplay, I put out the invitation for a dance, I start casting, and then the characters are becoming apparent to me. And then when the actors come on board, this is a wonderful experience. I mean, you sit down with the actor, and they share their more intimate stories with you, and you share your most intimate stories with them, and you become lifelong confidence. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I know things about my actors that their parents don't know, and they know things about me that no one knows. And that's a very, very intimate process and it goes back into those characters you know and the characters just become more rounded and more more interesting and then there's a draft and another draft and then we start improvising and then we start playing and we don't do any of it on the set 
You know, I mean, whenever I go to film, I again, I, I view making films like going to war. That's no place to improvise. You need to have a very precise plan, and you've got to execute, 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 because the set is not a very intelligent place. You don't really have time for creativity on a set because, yeah, I mean, you need every available moment you need to be shooting. But you can rehearse forever, and you can come up with the most interesting stuff. So I spend a lot of time rehearsing, and that's the time I really, really like. Uh, there's always kind of a depressing moment where, you know, the screenplay meets the budget, mm. right? But I don't let it get me down because, you know, I think the budget is whatever this film can afford. And, you know, I don't complain. I accept it. And then you have to shoot the movie, which is um, a very difficult process. Once uh, Francois Truffaut once said, the most horrible thing about shooting a movie, it's not going to be exactly the way you imagine it. The only question is, how much less is it going to be than you imagine? 90% or 80% or 70%? And then you have to fight, like the little Dutch boy with his finger, you know, in the dike. I mean, you have to protect the film from all the... Uh, outside forces. I mean, we, we shot in Jerusalem the other story when some intifada broke out. And intifada being intifada, and the movie still must be shot. We, we had a really an amazing moment there. We shot in an Arab neighborhood, which was deemed very, very dangerous. And of course, you come in with all your prejudices, right? Because they are the other, right? And we are Israelis shooting a movie in an Arab neighborhood. Yeah. And you are very, very cautious of getting stabbed, getting shot, very, very hot day. And some woman came out of the houses with a pitcher full of cold water, and she asked us in Arabic, no less. And it was such a beautiful moment. It was the yeah. consummate moment of the other letting you know that many of your fears are unfounded. You know, so for me, shooting is a very, very difficult time just because I have to fight my own limitations. I have to find the clock. I have to fight the element. And then when I go into uh, editing, if, if you have done your work properly, editing is not as difficult as it's deemed to be. And I get to spend time with my editor friend. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, again, what, what I really like is the creative process first with myself and, and secondly with the actors. And then okay. the third magical moment is when a movie meets an audience. I was in Atlanta a couple of um, days ago and um, I went backstage before the Q&A and they were showing the other story. And I walked up during the last two minutes and the audience laughed out loud, you know, maybe five, six times. It's a Hebrew language movie. And you go, wow, I mean, if you can get an audience to laugh out loud in a movie which is not a comedy on the very last two minutes, just before they kind of applaud, then that just really fills your heart with, with great love for both audience and film. Sure. So the, the connection, the relevance of the piece of art that you've created. Indeed. Do, do you and your wife, being that she's an artist, have conversations about art and the relevance of what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, uh, she she's very very involved in everything I do. Um, she uh, reads all of my uh, my screenplays. Sometimes she has to read all of my drafts, which can be daunting. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's a great photographer. She's a great sculptress. I get very involved in what she does. Um, it's a wonderful thing living with an artist. I mean, she she understands everything I go through. I understand everything that she's going through. Um, our daughter is an aspiring filmmaker, so that uh, unto itself is joyous. Sure, sure. Well, I'm going to leave you with one final question, and um, it's about legacy. It's an interesting question for an artist who's created quite a body of work, as you, 20 feature films and quite a career. 
of what you hope that your relevance or your legacy will be as an artist, as a filmmaker, a storyteller? Well, you know, um, when you know, I, I used to play basketball when I was in high school, and I found out that one sure way to miss the basket is to aim too much, you know? And um, I think you make the movies that are right for you emotionally. I think you try to come from the best place within your psyche. I think you watch over the years how your films become part of the collective subconsciousness or the collective memory or the collective mythology of of a given society in, in which you live that you like very much. And you don't quite think of it as legacy. You just it, it, it makes you really happy that you were a part of that community and that you contributed something to the ongoing discussion. Israel is a really young country. Israel has been around for 70 years or so. You know, So Israel had a stage where it was a wonder child, and now it's a teenager, and there's some acne going on, right? And that too shall pass. But you are part of trying to accelerate this angry teenager kind of a period of time. And you try to contribute to uh, the political, to the social process, while doing things which are deeply personal and a dialogue between yourself and your parents and your family. And you're trying to do both things at once. And when you look back at the movies that you have done and the way people have embraced them, you don't quite see it as a legacy, but you kind of look back and you go, I have lived. Well, thank you for coming to Indiana. Thank you for being here with us on Profiles. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's wonderful being here, and thank you for uh, your wonderful questions. I'm John Vickers, the director of the Indiana University Cinema, speaking with Israeli filmmaker Avi Nesher. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.